Dear Father, I thank you for the, uh, the privilege to be here. I thank you for working out the details and covering all the loose ends that threatened uh, to derail this occasion. And just now I pray that you would uh, give clarity of thought and that more than anything that might be accomplished in my mind, that, that the, uh, the inspired content would speak and be of value to those who listen. Pray that you would bless to that end now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one thing I should say, because, you know, anytime you have a, a group like this, there's a, a chance, hopefully it's a good chance, that not everyone here is a born-in-the-fold-and-died-in-the-wool Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, some of you may be, you know, kind of wondering what this operation is all about anyhow. One of the things that Adventism has to offer to the world is the, the concept of what we refer to as the Great Controversy, the understanding of the war between good and evil behind the scenes and in a greater level of detail than is common in, in other denominations. Now, if you happen to not be a Seventh-day Adventist, I understand that. And I relate to your mental processes. I can, I'm, I'm good with that. That's no problem. I, I want you to understand that at this point, what I'm going to be presenting is a clarification, perhaps, if you wish, of an underlying concept that pervades Adventism. It's a, it's a mindset. It's a, it's a perspective. Sometimes it escapes our own detection. We, we, we've grown up with it, some of us, and we don't, we don't even realize the degree that this great controversy concept is, is molding us. But that's really what we're going to be looking at. So whether you are prepared to agree or whether you are prepared to accept the authority of the sources I cite, that's okay. At least you can say, oh, well, that explains these guys. <laughs> now I kind of understand why they think the way they do. Now, of course, I think that's the way we all could benefit by thinking, and I invite you to consider it. So we're going to begin with something less than your, uh, your most common of sermon topics. You don't often get a sermon on Lucifer, I don't suppose. But, you know, some, uh, some general, and I've forgotten who he was, and probably there's multitudes of them who claim the, the distinction, but someone once said that the, the first thing to do in a war is to know your, know your enemy. And so there is a place for that. And so we're going to, uh, going to be looking at some of that. I'm, yeah, I'm going to walk back and forth so I can see what's happening here. So we start off with Lucifer. Now, Lucifer is a great example of something that I, I, I find interesting. In the business world, and I don't know, just every other world today, one of the more commonly repeated axioms is, you need to think outside the box. Yeah? Apparently, we're all living in a box and very few of us can actually project our thought processes beyond the cardboard. And, and so the idea of thinking outside the box is, you know, that's a, boy, that's, that's, that's a valued thing, this, this innovative mindset. 
that's a, that's a sales point if you're on your resume, right? If you're trying to get a job. Well, you know, Lucifer was the first one to really do that. <laughs> and so you notice we have a little subtitle there. Lucifer's just basically said, let's try something new. And you'll see what I mean by that, what I think he meant by that as we go along. So let's start at the beginning. Well, actually, it's the middle of the beginnings because the Bible gives us three beginnings. If I just said, when is the beginning, biblically speaking, you would probably think of this one. But that's number three. Anybody think of a different beginning? That's number one. So what's the beginning in the middle? It's not as, not as clear-cut, perhaps, and not as famous. But it's this verse. Jesus speaking to the Jews. He said, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, for he is a liar and the father of it. The beginning, number two, the beginning, beginning of what? Beginning of sin. It's nothing real complicated. But what's interesting here is that Jesus says that the moment there was sin, there was murder. Well, <clears throat> this second mystery is closely related with, or excuse me, the the middle beginning is closely related with the second mystery. The Bible speaks of mysteries. Paul especially seemed to like that uh, terminology, right? The first mystery is the good one, right? The mystery of godliness. The second mystery is the bad one, the mystery of lawlessness. One of the interesting aspects of these two is that the first one was hidden from the beginning of the ages. Now, what makes that important is that the mystery of godliness preceded the mystery of iniquity or lawlessness in the New King James here. But the mystery of godliness is the solution, the only effective response to the mystery of lawlessness. Does that make sense? In other words, God had the solution before the problem came up. That's, that's, that's my point there. It's, it's really hard to catch God very flat-footed. You might as well give up on it pretty much. Okay. Well, you're probably familiar with the, uh, this, this mystery of lawlessness. Um, we can take a quick look at this. You no doubt have seen these verses. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, there's an interesting little detail buried in that. I am not a Greek scholar. My, uh, my Greek vocabulary is uh, probably about eight words. <laughs> so I don't qualify as a Greek scholar. But those who do tell us that there is a, there's a, a specific point that's mentioned here, a very specific point, I should say. You maybe are used to this verse in the King James. I'm sure you've heard it. It says that they did not receive the love of the truth. 
and that they, uh, they all should believe a lie. But the Greek authorities tell us that it's the definite article, right? You remember your grammar? Articles? How many articles do you have these days? Come on, people, I taught English for 20 years. You, you got to be better than that. <laughs> well, technically three, but you were pretty close. <laughs> you can make it almost two because A and an are the same thing. It just depends on whether you start the next word with a vowel or not. Okay, so we, we'll, give, we'll give credit for two. But A, an, and the. Now, catch the difference here in case this is you know, somehow a little vague in your thinking since seventh grade English class. There is a difference between, between saying, there goes a car, and saying, there goes the car. I don't know what the difference is, but in a normal conversation, you would know the difference, right? If I'm talking about Fred's car, and I say, there goes the car, that's, that's Fred's, right? It's a specific car. There's a specific lie. What's the specific lie? Remember, I wanted to find out where this thing began, right? <clears throat> well, the devil was a liar from the beginning as well as a murderer. We often say that the first lie was, you will not surely die. And you can maybe make that case for Earth. But, ah, oh, come on, they'd had the whole rebellion in heaven already, and Lucifer had been kicked out of heaven. He's, he'd told plenty of lies up there already. So that wasn't the first lie. My, and, and this is, I'll just tell you right here, this is a point, if you choose to differ with me, that's fun. I, I am not dogmatic on this point, but when I go looking for something that matches what I think are the basic characteristics of the lie, I go right back to the beginning. And I would argue for finding it in this passage. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Well, now we could look at that and say, Lucifer, it's not going to end up that way, man. <laughs> You're wrong. So the whole thing's a lie. Or would we just call it Hot air, you know, bragging. I'm going to argue that down at the bottom of this is the root of the lie. What Lucifer's saying here is I'm going to take care of myself, and when I do that, it'll just be the same thing God does. I will be like the most, I will be godly. Who's going to argue with godliness? And, you know, playing devil's advocate for just a moment, you know, you can, you, remember, the angels didn't even know there was a law in heaven, right? Okay? There were a lot of things that had never been raised to their perception. And if Lucifer came along and, you know, just asked a few Simple questions, things like, 
Hey, Gabriel. You know how many hymns there are in the hymnal? Yes, I looked the other day, just out of curiosity. There are 67,543,812. Or some other number. I don't pretend to know that by any inspired source. And then Lucifer might say, you're right. Why are they all about God? Who set that up? Why, when we gather for worship, do we always worship God? Who set that up? Well, who set it up? God's the creator. <clears throat> so did he exalt his throne? Did he ascend to the most? Was he, in fact, had, had God done what Lucifer said he wanted to do? I'm going to argue that that's the lie. Well, let's see. Let's go on. Before we proceed any further in this discussion here, I need to make a point. I'm actually going to repeat it two or three times because I want you to be sure and catch the point. And that is that there never was and never will be a reason for sin. You all know that. I just want to refresh that in your mind. There is no reason for sin. It is impossible to explain the origin of sin so as to give a reason for its existence. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. Now, you know, you couldn't... If, if you take up the challenge of trying to figure this out, you can bash your head against the wall for a long time and, and gain nothing but headaches. You know? I mean, perfect God, perfect universe, perfect creation, perfect angels, perfect heaven, perfect Lucifer. Where did sin come from? I can't tell you. You can't tell me. <laughs> it is a mystery. Now, I want to point out that saying there are things that are impossible to understand is actually annoying for people who like to understand. If you Consider the Western world approach to what we call academia. The fundamental premise is if we only get enough information, we can understand this. If we can understand it, then we can relate to it wisely. 
we might be able to manipulate or modify or maybe even use it if we understand it. The devil will tempt you to try and understand things that God has said you can't. Don't do it. <laughs> okay? It bugs me too, but just don't do it. Okay? Just, just don't do it. Okay. If we think we found a reason for Lucifer choosing to sin, we're wrong. But that doesn't mean that God has not told us quite a bit about this process. And that's what we want to look at. So we're going to walk a kind of a fine line between trying to analyze the process of not the very origin of sin, but the promulgation and the growth of sin the moment after it sprang into existence. Does that make sense? I kind of feel like one of those big bang cosmologists, you know? It just happened. <laughs> and in the first 27 femtoseconds or whatever it is, you know, there was this... Yeah, anyhow. Okay. It's, it's kind of that way, though. I, I can't tell you how it happened. <laughs> but I want to understand what happened next as much as we can. And it's important in this that we, we remember that we are actually in a war a war with the potential of deadly results. We would feel somewhat put out, I suppose. And this is almost a little too raw to even use the illustration. I've been using this illustration for months now already, you know, and it's, it's maybe I shouldn't this week, but you know. If somebody were to walk in the back door with an AK-47 and start shooting us, we would, we would take offense at that. That wouldn't be good. But we are in a war. And we have a foe who is wanting to do worse to us than high-velocity lead poisoning. So bear that in mind. OK, let's go on. God calls for more tact, more wise generalship than has yet been given him by his human agents. There is need of sharp, sanctified thinking and keen work to counteract the ingenious plans of Satan. Well, how are we going to do sharp, sanctified thinking if we don't know anything about the topic? Okay? I think there's, a, there's room for exploring this. At the final condemnation of Satan and his angels and of all men who have fully, finally identified themselves with him as transgressors of God's law, every mouth will be stopped. When the hosts of rebellion, from the first great rebel to the last transgressor, stop and think about that for a minute. The last transgressor. What a, what a dubious distinction that would be. Of all the losers in the universe, you had to be the last one. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and can you imagine? Just think, you know, think back to the, the rebellion in heaven. You know, Luc um, Ellen White implies that Lucifer had almost fifty percent of the angels at one point, and then the good angels kind of you know argued the issue back and forth a little bit, and and it got down to only thirty-three percent. 
Well, okay, so if we say maybe it was up as high as 47, 33 to 47, that's 14% of the angels who have spent the last 6,000 years with a very clear realization that they dodged a terrible bullet. <laughs> By the smallest of measures, perhaps. That would, that would be something to wake up to every morning, wouldn't it? I guess they don't sleep. I don't know. Anyhow. Uh, okay, so with that in mind, <clears throat> let's take a look at the beginning of sin. Almost the beginning. The greatest talents and the highest gifts that could be bestowed on a created being were given to Lucifer, the covering chair. Before his fall, he was a glorious being occupying a position next to Christ. Okay, good. Another item. Lucifer was a covering cherub, distinguished by his excellence. God made him good and beautiful, as near as possible, like himself. Now, let me just stop you there for just a moment, because <clears throat> one thing that we're going to have to wrestle with is, is, is a little piece of wisdom that we all received as children, and that is, God can do anything. No, he can't. Where did you get that idea? <laughs> He could not make someone more like himself than Lucifer. That's what this says. As near as possible. He can't go further than that. He couldn't do it. That was the, that was the most godlike being he could create. <clears throat> but notice something about Lucifer. He was a created being, and these gifts were given to him. God made him good. It's not a bad way to start off your existence, is it? You know? Poof, on the day of your creation, you are the most godlike being that could possibly be made. It's not a bad deal. <clears throat> but Lucifer chose to sin. We'll never know why he did that. What we do know, one thing that we do know, is that he made that choice about the same time as God was getting ready to create our planet. That's been implied in a, a number of, of uh, spirit prophecy statements that we've had for quite a while. But there's some, some new information. So it raises a question here. This whole thing about the creation of Earth, is that merely coincidental? Or, or did the creation of our planet and our species actually play a role in this whole drama? Well, let's see. <clears throat> when God said to his son, let us make man in our image, Satan was jealous of Jesus. He wished to be consulted concerning the formation of man, and because he was not, he was filled with envy, jealousy, and hatred. It doesn't say that that was the very first time he had sinful tendencies or thoughts or whatever. 
he may have harbored desires for self-exaltation prior, but they were somewhat quiescent, perhaps. <clears throat> Satan hates mankind because they are the workmanship of God. He opposed the creation of men. Of man, yeah, man. Don't do that. Bad idea. Don't make those guys. Interesting. Is this only coincidental? How is this related? If it is related, I'm going to tell you that I think the two issues are very much related, very much connected. So, and again, you can differ with me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a big boy. <laughs> you don't have to buy everything that I say. Okay, you judge the the, the evidence, and the, you know, for yourself. Okay. But I want to show you a sequence of, of statements now and consider these from the position of Lucifer after having first indulged in selfish thoughts. Next to the angelic beings, the human family formed in the image of God are the noblest of his created works. Okay, you might have known that. The earth was to be peopled with beings only a little lower than the angels. That sounds a lot like Psalm 8, which coincidentally sounds a lot like Hebrews 2, because Hebrews is quoting Psalms. Man was created a little lower than the angels. Fair enough. Look at this statement. No other creature that God has made is capable of such improvement, such refinement, such nobility as Man. Man cannot conceive what he may be and what he may become. Through the grace of Christ, he is capable of constant mental progress. Well, now that makes human beings sound kind of special, but they were created below the angels. But notice some words here. Improvement. Become progress. Lucifer was made, created, given. I think there's a difference here. It was a wonderful thing for God to create man, to make mind. God created man that every faculty might be the faculty of the divine mind. I don't really understand that statement. I'll just tell you. It's one of those, wow, that's deep statements. I, I don't know that, <laughs> what that all means, but I think it's deep. <laughs> man was the crowning act of the creation of God, made in the image of God and designed to be a counterpart of God. Man is very dear to God because he was formed in his own image. What did Ellen White mean when she wrote counterpart? If uh, the President of the United States uh, should go on a foreign trip, which he is right now, as I recall, and he runs into, through some state occasion, the leader of some foreign country, 
it's commonly expressed, you know, that the, the president met with his counterpart. It doesn't necessarily make them equals. You know, the president could meet with the counterpart of some very, very tiny little country. And, you know, this guy is the king or prime minister or whatever of three million people. And, you know, Mr. Trump is the president of whatever the head county is down here right now. I don't know. <laughs> um, so counterpart, interesting word there, interesting, interesting word. Well, let's go on. <clears throat> God would place man upon probation to test his loyalty. This is the whole tree in the garden thing, right? Before he could be rendered eternally secure. If he endured the test wherewith God saw fit to prove him, he should eventually be equal with the angels. Huh. Interesting. Those who in the strength of Christ overcome the great enemy of God and man will occupy a position in the heavenly courts above angels who have never fallen. <clears throat> um, what happened to a little lower? <laughs> what happened to a little lower? The work of redemption involves consequences of which it is difficult for man to have any conception. There was to be imparted an excellency of power which would place him higher than the angels who had not fallen. But, you know, these statements, this one and the, and the previous one, they, they're both set as the, the result of the plan of salvation. And so that raises a, a, a kind of a tacky little question. Are we better off because of sin? <laughs> Isn't that kind of tacky? I mean, you know, it's like, you know, maybe there's a few fringe benefits to this whole thing after all. In order to answer that question, we need to know a little bit more about Lucifer, actually. Okay? God was a light so effulgent that Lucifer occupied the position of covering cherubs so that the universe could at all times look upon his glory. Effulgent is a certifiable 25-cent word. Isn't it? What a great vocabulary word, huh? Anybody know what effulgent means? It's old English for bright. <laughs> God was a light so bright that Lucifer occupied the position of covering cherubs, that the universe could at all times look upon his glory. Okay, this was Lucifer's, uh, you know, you get the impression that Lucifer had more than one job. You know, he was the choir director, but he was also the covering cherub, and who knows what else he did too. Okay, but this is what he was primarily known as, as the covering cherub. Notice this one. He who was once the covering cherub whose work it was to hide from the heavenly intelligences the glory of God, perverted his intellect and divorced himself from God. What was Lucifer's job? To hide the glory of God. 
Now notice this. Adam and Eve were granted communion with their maker with no obscuring veil between. This is clearly prior to sin. So what happens to Lucifer's job if this idea catches on? <clears throat> well, hmm. So is that a reason for sin? If, you know, Lucifer was not included in the council on the planning of earth and, and humanity. He wanted to be. But he just wasn't invited in. But apparently he heard something, you know, I don't know. Are there coordinated leaks in heaven like every government on earth? I don't know. Somehow he heard something about it, it seems. And if he heard, and this is an if, but if he heard, yeah, these guys are going to start out below angels, but uh, they ain't going to stay there. Would that be a reason for dissatisfaction on his part? Would that be a reason for sin? And I'm going to say, no, that's not a reason whatsoever. What that should have been a reason for was for Lucifer to say, Praise the Lord for the first time in my life. I'll get to find out what it's like to take orders from somebody other than God. This will be so cool. Everything God has ever done in the past has been for my blessing. Everything he's doing now is for my blessing. I will learn wonderful things by being in a new position that I have never had the privilege of being in before. Praise the Lord. That's what he should have said. I suspect, and this is only a suspicion at this point, I suspect that he had already, in some way or the other, come to indulge this desire for self-exaltation. And then you come along and say, these guys are going to get, the, uh, get the, the promotion above you, and that's like, like salt in the wound, right? Let's go on. Through the imparted life of Christ, the man has been given opportunity to win back again the lost gift of life and to stand in his original position before God a partaker of the divine nature. No, we are not better off because of sin. Sin is an unfortunate interruption, but when it's all said and done, and human beings are in fact above the angels who have never sinned, it will be because through the grace of Christ they have regained their original position. Nothing more. Satan, in his efforts to deceive and tempt our race, had thought to frustrate the divine plan of man's creation, but Christ now asks that this plan be carried into effect as if man had never fallen. He asks for his people not only pardon and justification full and complete, but a share in his glory and a seat upon his throne. You know, Lucifer had said a thing or two about thrones. Yeah, just stop and realize the magnitude of this, okay? God is suggesting to the universe that he take people like you and me who have never experienced a day of heavenly perfection in our lives, who have in fact been guilty of all the worst sins, pride, selfishness, and he says, I want to bring them to heaven and give them a seat with me on my throne. 
Does that strike you as a good idea? <laughs> and just to kick it up one more notch, what is it? First uh, Timothy 6.16, someone correct me because I always have a hard time if that's, I, I, I think I may have actually kind of remembered it right this time, but you know. We use the verse all the time in our studies on the state of the dead, you know. God alone hath immortality. But then what's the whole deal with 1 Corinthians 15? The trumpet shall sound, and this mortal shall put on immortality. Do angels have immortality? Yeah. Lucifer will die. What about Gabriel? Gabriel's not going to die. No, he won't. But not because he's immortal. It's because he has what the theologians refer to as conditional eternal life. As long as he obeys, he lives. He's going to continue obeying, he will continue living forever. Smart man or angel. But God's saying, I want to take human beings to heaven, put them on the throne of God, and then make it so we can't get rid of them if we want to. Okay, let's go on. One more. The creation of our world was brought into the councils of heaven. There, the covering cherub prepared his request that he should be made prince to govern the world then in prospect. We would say then in planning. This was not accorded him. Jesus Christ was to rule the earthly kingdom. Under God, he engaged to take the world with all its probabilities, and I suspect that that includes the probability of sin. The law of heaven should be the standard law for this new world, for human intelligences. Lucifer was jealous of Christ, and this jealousy worked into rebellion, and he carried with him a large number of the holy angels. He wanted to be the prince of this world. God said no and kicked him out of heaven. And Lucifer said, you want to bet? Just watch. It's kind of interesting. It's, 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 it's a pretty personal controversy. Okay, got to move on. Now, at the core of Lucifer's rebellion, there is one very simple but immensely important concept. There was, I, I don't know what it was, but there was at some point in time a first occasion when God said, Lucifer, would you please do this? And Lucifer thought, no, that's better. Wouldn't it be fascinating to know? You know, was it a little thing? Yeah. Lucifer, let's, let's start worship tonight with hymn number such and such. No, I want that one. You know, is that where it started? Was it a bigger item? Was it a huge item? I don't know. But someplace there was a first time when God said, please do this, and Lucifer said, no, that's better. That's huge. In order to get to that point, one of two things had to have already happened in Lucifer's mind. Either Lucifer, God had, Lucifer believed God had made a mistake. 
Wow, isn't that something? God wants me to do this, but it's, it's like he goofed. <laughs> I mean, that's obviously better. And he just, he goofed. God's pretty smart, but he just, wow, man. I, can you believe it, man? He, he just fouled up this time. purely intellectual sort of an issue. If it wasn't that, if it wasn't a mistake, but Lucifer says this is better, or that's better, and God says do this, and Lucifer says no, that's better. And this is no mistake whatsoever. God knows what he's asking me to do, and he knows that that's better, but he's trying to get me to do that. What have we got then? The second option is that he kind of could have believed that God had deliberately commanded something that was not in Lucifer's best interest. In other words, Lucifer had lost faith in God. Now, very quickly, there's a there's a, a concept. Sometimes it's known as the divine or the you know, divine triad or the supreme being triad or something like that. And basically, this is this is not unique to Christianity, but but the idea is if you believe in a supreme being, you better hope he has three qualities. <laughs> okay, you better hope that he is all wise, all powerful, and all loving, and he better be all three. Because if he's all all loving. And he's all wise, but he's not all powerful. Yeah, well, you know, I tried. It just didn't work. Couldn't pull it off. That could be a real problem when you're running the universe. If he's all loving and all powerful, but not all wise, then you got somebody come along with, with, well, that didn't work, so well, let's try another idea. (laughs) Okay? Perfectly good intentions and the power to make it happen, but not the wisdom to make the perfect right thing happen. And if he's all wise and all powerful, but he doesn't love you, you better watch out. Because <laughs> you're in a world of hurt then. Okay. So these three characteristics wisdom, power, and love. Lucifer called into question two of those. Wisdom and love. There is no record in the Bible or spirit prophecy of Lucifer questioning God's power. The angels, the good angels said, you know, he could throw you down like a rock to the ground, right? Remember that? As, as, as easy as throwing a pebble to the ground. And Lucifer said, yeah, I'll risk it though. Because I thought of something new. (laughs) Even if God had just made a simple mistake, that was a serious error. After all, God was in charge of running the universe. Who could trust his wisdom if it had been proven faulty? And if God hadn't made a mistake, then it meant that he was intentionally harming his subjects. Who could trust his love if it had been proven false? So Lucifer had lost faith in God's wisdom and probably God's love as well. I'm certain that it was a very little time delay. You lose faith in his wisdom, you're going to lose faith in his love quickly. 
Those are huge. That's, this, is, this is the beginning of everything. This is losing faith in God. I think there is no coincidence that righteousness today is still by faith. We've got to go back to the root issue. But that's not all. If Lucifer was smart enough to spot God's mistake, that meant Lucifer was smarter than God. What's more, if God had tried to trick Lucifer into doing something that wasn't for his best good, then the mere fact that God had failed to fool him meant that Lucifer was smarter than God. That's the stuff pride is made of. Now it would be easier for Lucifer to simply do what he was sure was the best thing. I mean, actually, it's, it's been categorically proven that I'm smarter than God. He wants me to do this, but that's better. And since I'm smarter than God, what would you do? You would do the smart thing, wouldn't you? That's what we call disobedience. The rest happens in the mind. But that's not all. Even if Lucifer never said a word about his disobedience, the influence of his actions told all the other angels, you can't depend on God to take care of you. You need to take charge of your own life. You need to do what God does. You need to exalt yourself. You need to take care of you. You need to look out for number one. And actually, you know, it's kind of weird. Why in the world should I spend all my time worrying about all you guys and you spend all your time worrying about all the rest of us and you spend all your time worrying about... Why don't, why don't I just take care of myself and you take care of yourself and you take care of yourself? Mathematically, it comes out the same anyhow. What a great idea. I mean, really, seriously. Who knows what I need better than I do? Well, the answer to that is God, but you know, Lucifer wasn't tracking that way right then. Okay. That's a lie. You need to exalt yourself. You need to not depend on God. That, I argue, is a lie. The direct descendant of the lie, which says that God lives that way. But that's not all. Once Lucifer took the responsibility of caring for himself, it meant he had to do whatever it took to provide for himself. If necessary, that meant stealing. You know what? There's only enough food for one. And there's two of us here. <laughs> if necessary, that meant murder. Nothing personal. It's not that I dislike you, but I have to look out for myself. And there's only enough food for one. Like Jesus said, Lucifer was a murderer from the beginning because the very principle that says God is selfish, I will be selfish too, inherent in that is all evil up to and including murder. Okay, let's move on. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to sort of apologize because we're not going to cover everything that would be fun to cover here, 
But I want to just list off some of the things that were told that Lucifer did in heaven. What are the tactics? What did he actually do in his rebellion? Well, the first thing he did is he exploited his position of trust. I mean, he was, he was a big guy, right? He held on to that for as long as possible. He hid his intentions from others. He would imply or insinuate without clear assertions. He'd, he'd never just come right out and say what he was trying to do. He just kind of... I, you know, I assume that Angel's average IQ is somewhat in excess of mine. Um, it would be fun to know, actually probably be scary, to know the level of subtlety that Lucifer used to trick really smart beings, you know? <laughs> he would distort others' perceptions. Ellen White says that he used hypnotism. He would maintain plausible deniability. Uh, get other people to do the dirty work for him, right? So he could say, well, I, no, I didn't have anything to do with that. He would shift responsibility to others, have a fall guy, right? He would lie. He would abandon discredited positions without accepting responsibility for having advocated them. When he would say something that was tangible or clear enough, clear enough that God could address it directly, the moment, or the angels, the moment someone did address it and say, that's false, it's just like, oh, yeah, that, that, never, that never happened. <laughs> you know, it's just, move on, move on. Ellen White makes that point a couple of times. He would cite the supporters as evidence of correctness. They, look at, they believe. They all believe. Right? We're all in this together. You can't all be wrong. And last on the list, he would appeal to sympathy. How come God's always picking on me? <laughs> okay, we don't have time to cover everything on all this, but I want to go through some of these things real quickly, some, some statements that we'll, you'll see that these items are, come up. And it will paint us a picture of what that rebellion was like. Taking advantage of the loving, loyal trust reposed in him by the holy beings under his command, he had so artfully instilled into their minds his own distrust and discontent that his agency was not discerned. Lucifer had presented the purposes of God in a false light, misconstruing and distorting them to excite dissent and dissatisfaction. He cunningly drew his hearers on to give utterance to their feelings. Then these expressions were repeated by him when it would serve his purpose as evidence that the angels were not fully in harmony with the government of God. Now, this thought right here is the number one thing that Ellen White cites more than any other in the process of Lucifer's rebellion. He would plant seeds of doubt, and then she says he'd go away, and he'd come back later. Makes me wonder, what's the, what's the time frame in heaven? You know, is, is later, like, you know, three days or a week, a month, 100 years? You know, I, I don't really know the time scale that this developed on. But he would come back later and re-engage those same angels and manipulate the conversation to lead them up to the point where the seemingly intelligent thing to say was what Lucifer had said the last time. Does that make sense? He plants the seed and then gets them to say it. That's dangerous. It's the number one thing she cites. 
Now, I will just point out to you that there is, in fact, an honored profession amongst human beings, the professional duties of which consist almost entirely of telling people what to believe and then checking to see whether they can repeat it back to you. It's called teaching. Don't, don't ever underestimate the ability of an educational system to corrupt people if it's not being carried out properly. Going on. While claiming for himself perfect loyalty to God, he urged that changes in the order and laws of heaven were necessary for the stability of the divine government. Thus, while working to excite opposition to the law of God and to instill his own discontent into the minds of the angels under him, he was ostensibly seeking to remove dissatisfaction and to reconcile disaffected angels to the order of heaven. While secretly fomenting discord and rebellion, he, with consummate craft, caused it to appear as his sole purpose to promote loyalty and to preserve harmony and peace. How sweet. In his first display of disaffection, Satan was very cunning. All he claimed was that he wanted to bring in a, a better order of things to make great improvements. Heaven's been good, but, you know, we could, we could improve this. Incidentally, if, if some of these start to sound a little bit like politics, there's absolutely no coincidence, okay? <laughs> Satan could present no defined reason as to why he wished the law of God changed or abolished. He simply declared his conviction that the angels would be better off without the law, but could not tell in what way they would be advantaged. Fascinating. Lucifer gained the sympathy of some of his associates by suggesting thoughts of criticism regarding the government of God. This evil seed was scattered in a most seducing manner, and after it had sprung up and taken root in the minds of many, he gathered the ideas that he himself had first implanted in the minds of others and brought them before the highest order of angels as the thoughts of other minds against the government of God. Thus, by ingenious methods of his own devising, Lucifer introduced rebellion in heaven. Uh, you know, guys, I just need to let you know what they're saying down there on the street. <laughs> I planted all the ideas myself. No, he didn't say that, okay? This is, again, I just want to reiterate, this is the thing that Ellen White cites more commonly than other, and I think there's a good reason for that in this statement. Words have power to react on the character. Men are influenced by their own words. Often, under a momentary impulse prompted by Satan, they give utterance to jealousy or evil surmising, expressing that which they do not really believe. But the expression reacts on the thoughts. They are deceived by their words. And they come to believe that true which was spoken at Satan's instigation. It is dangerous to utter a word of doubt, dangerous to question and criticize divine light. The brain is apparently wired so that when it hears me say something, it thinks that that's my idea. <laughs> I've said it, now it's my own position. That's one of the reasons that Ellen White cites for not being... Uh, a strong proponent of debating societies, right? 
Anybody ever be, you know, get themselves into some sort of an academic debate or something and, and be assigned the side that you did not believe? Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, <clears throat> let's get back to Lucifer here. Many of these angels who sympathized with Lucifer had occupied high positions in the government of God. All were enriched with the talent of intellect and were girded with strength and glory. Remember the 450 princes who sided with Korodathan and Abiram? Seems like kind of the same story. There may be some extra danger to being in a responsible position. One might not want to covet that. The seeds of alienation were planted afterward to be drawn out and presented before the heavenly courts as originating not with Satan, but with the angels. In his artful way, he drew expressions of doubt from them. Then when he was interviewed, he accused those whom he had educated. He laid all the disaffection on the ones he had led. In his interviews with other angels, after succeeding in finding sympathizers, he arranged his arguments and presented them as if they were the sentiments that originated in the minds of those whom he first led astray. This is the whole you know, shifting responsibility, plausible deniability type of thing. It's, it's, it's those guys. It's, it's, it's those guys down in the southeast quadrant. Yeah, they're the ones that are the troublemakers here. Or wherever. Okay. Put yourself on the other side of the situation. Suppose you were an angel, a good angel. What's your defense against Lucifer? That's a trickier thing than it may seem. What is your defense against these ideas? The tempter would throw all the blame of his course upon others who were below him. He would make it appear that if he could have moved according to his own judgment, all this demonstration of rebellion would have been avoided. God, if you would have just let me take care of it. It didn't need to be like this, God. Lucifer worked through the medium of influence taking advantage of the action of mind on mind. And ever since then, sin has continued its hateful work, reaching from mind to mind. Every sin committed awakens the echoes of the original sin. Mutual dependence is a wonderful thing. Reciprocal influence should be carefully studied. When placed on the side of right, influence is a power for God. When placed on the side of evil, it is a power for Satan. One human being under Satan's control becomes a means of temptation to another human being. Thus, evil grows into immense proportions. Well, okay. The influence of mind to mind is similar. So strong a power for good when sanctified is equally strong for evil in the hands of those opposed to God. The, this power Satan used in his work of instilling evil into the minds of the angels and he made it appear that he was seeking the good of the universe. That's what it looked like to the angels. What was their defense? <clears throat> Let's just scoot ahead here. Satan was artful in presenting his side of the question. As soon as he found that one position was seen in its true character, he changed it for another. Yeah, it does sound like a politician. 
Satan exultingly pointed to his sympathizers comprising nearly one half of all the angels and exclaimed, these are with me. Will you expel these also and make such a void in heaven? And the answer to that question turned out to be yes. (laughs) But he didn't think it would be. Everybody agrees with me. God, you just keep picking on me, right? When it was announced that with all his sympathizers he must be expelled from the abodes of bliss, Satan and his hosts threw the blame of their rebellion wholly upon Christ, declaring if they had not been reproved, they would never have rebelled. Eh? (laughs) You got that one backwards. You were reproved for your rebellion. But it didn't look like rebellion. That's what makes it so tricky. God was in the position of having to reprove that which didn't look reprovable. Make sense? Following me? It was not an easy situation. Lucifer cast the cause of his defection upon Jesus Christ and upon God. If they had not so firmly resisted his plans, he said, he would not have gone on doing as he did. Wrongdoers always find sympathizers, and Satan so represented his case to the angels that he drew many angels from their allegiance to God. You know, when we look at Satan's arguments like this, frankly, sometimes they look really stupid, right? This one, you know, as if, what was that? If you, uh, yeah, if you, if you hadn't resisted, I wouldn't have done what I, I wouldn't have kept on doing. Well, that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't make good sense with physics, you know? You got to object in motion, it takes an equal and opposite force to stop it, right? If you hadn't resisted me, I wouldn't have gone on. What happened to the law of inertia? Yeah, you would have, okay? You know, but anyhow. So it seems kind of dumb. And yet, it was packaged in a way that was deceiving to angels. And angels aren't dumb. I really think Ellen White has had to translate this down to dumb it down for us. You know, I suspect it was several orders of magnitude trickier, right? Satan is very good at what he does. Unfortunately, he's way too good. How good was he? Check this out. It is impossible for man to measure the ingenuity shown by Satan in deceiving human minds. You think you're going to understand everything and that's going to be your defense? Maybe not want to bet on that. Check this out. Lucifer's work of deception was done in so great secrecy that the angels in less exalted positions supposed that he was the ruler of heaven. What does she mean by that? (laughs) I don't really know exactly what she means by that. But it does give me an idea that he was pulling the wool over somebody's eyes. One thought here. This will sit until we come back to it later. This one's challenging. We're not going to dwell on it. I just want to throw it out there for you. Notice this. The originator of sin worked with all his deceptive powers and satanic subtlety to become equal with God in heaven as the Son of God was. Then, he thought, 
He could sway the heavenly angels as he desired. This specious, deceptive work was carried on secretly. The arch-deceiver himself concealed his identity so far as possible, and the Lord permitted this rebellion to develop before anything was done to save the angelic host from apostasy. So look at that last clause there. The deceptions of Satan were allowed to develop before anything was done to save the angels. Just hold that thought. Okay, last slide. What was it that started the argument? Lucifer, actually, when I, when I began doing that research, I, I was fearful there were going to be dozens of accusations and things. There aren't. It's pretty simple. Even when I slice and dice and kind of spin them out as separate as I can, just you know, so that you can be real specific, I only come up with nine. So here they are. Number one. Angels are holy by nature and wise enough to govern themselves, so they don't need God's law. Okay. God was unfair when he exalted Jesus above Lucifer. Okay. God is proud. God is selfish. God's law is defective and needs to be changed. And maybe as a measure of that defect, neither angels nor human beings can obey God's law. God's law is arbitrary. God's law makes forgiveness impossible. And last but not least, God is lying about all of the above. Now, <clears throat> if I am candidate A, and here I am candidate B, and we're both running for the office of mayor of Loma Linda, and we have a political you know, debate type of a thing, okay? So candidate A stands up and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I am so glad that you came out to our, our debate today. It shows your high sense of civic something or the other, okay? So before we really get going on, on all the issues, there's one thing that you really need to understand about my opponent. And that is, my opponent is a notorious liar. You really can't believe anything that he says. And then candidate A fills out the remaining however many minutes of his first time slot, and candidate B now has a chance to speak. What's the first thing he's going to want to say? I am not a liar. And candidate A says... He just lied. If you study debate and formal logic, you know, they have all these cool little logical fallacies. That's one of them. It works a little different than some of the others. This is known as poisoning the well. Candidate A poisoned the well of candidate B. He implied that he is not honest. Therefore, the audience now has to question 
everything that he says. You don't know whether he's telling you the truth. Now, that's probably a, not a bad position in which to approach politics in the first place. But, but nonetheless, assuming, <laughs> assuming that maybe there was a, an honest politician somewhere, you can see how you're in a bind once somebody says you're lying. Because no matter what I say, I could still be lying again. Make sense? He lied about ABC. I did not. He just lied again. Nothing but lies. So once someone has said that you're a liar, what can you say? Nothing. What can you do? That's the question. What was God going to do now? I invite you back for tomorrow morning. And we will look at Christ's response to this issue and where it goes from there. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath day. Thank you for the chance to slow down after uh, a lot of running. I'm sure everybody here was probably just about as busy as I was. We thank you for stories, history, information, the ability to just look at a picture and see how pieces fit together. Lord, we want to know where we fit in that picture. We want to know how we should fit in that picture. We'd like to know what we can do to finish that picture. We pray you will bless us now. Go with us. Give us your keeping and your safety, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.